Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, there's a knock at the door, and this man opens the door, looks around, there's no one there. He's about to close it when he notices a snail. And he looks at the snail, what the heck is this? Heaves it out to the street and closes the door. Three years later, there's a knock at the door. He opens the door. He looks down, he sees the snail. The snail says, hey, what was that about? I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from Brian Cranston. That'll break the ice. He's star of TV's Breaking Bad, but also of movies like Argo, which is more germane to today's show. That's because this is our super special all-movie episode. That's right. It's an hour of evidence that movies do matter, something even New Yorker film critic David Denby agrees with. He actually wrote a book-length indictment of modern big studio films called Do the Movies Have a Future? Nonetheless, he told us the following. I haven't given up on the idea of movies as our national theater. I know that when there's a, a movie that's relevant to the way we think about our lives, like The Social Network... It really does pull together the conversation, and I haven't given up the romance of entering a darkened place with 500 strangers and crying at once together. If you look at people, when they come out of a movie that's mm-hmm. been good, they look like zombies. They look, <laughs> Their eyes are glazed. You know what I'm talking about? That's a good thing? <laughs> yes, because they're trying to hold on to the image in their heads. They're trying to keep it going to sustain that mood, that enchantment for another 10 minutes, and then they're going to wake up with it the next morning. All right, people, so for the next hour, our goal is to make you feel like a zombie. In a good way. In a good way, with an entire episode about making, acting in, and loving movies. Coming up, Oscar nominees David O. Russell and Michelle Williams sing Sinatra and teach us sweet new words, respectively. Mm -hmm. David Allen Greer gives two snaps to our etiquette segment, and there's much more. And if by the end you're somehow still not satisfied... Well, in the words of Harmony Corinne, director of Spring Breakers, I know I'm probably the, you know, the greatest, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I know I'm a soldier of cinema, and I'm on the side of righteousness. More unbridled egomania coming up. Yay. But first, this is a dinner party, so time for cocktails. This is where we tell you something that happened in history and then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is an extra-large popcorn bucket filled with booze. It's better for you than the fake butter, though. That's right. First, the history part. We're taking you back to 1939, when all of Hollywood headed south. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. The biggest hit in movie history also had the biggest premiere. To understand why, you first got to understand just how big a deal Gone with the Wind was. The book had won the Pulitzer. Producer David O. Selznick had shelled out a record 50 grand for the film rights. The movie starred the biggest names in Hollywood, and it had taken years to get it to the screen. Anticipation was so high that at the first sneak preview, when people realized what they were about to see, they literally stood on their seats and cheered. So when Selznick decided the official world premiere would be in Atlanta, Georgia pulled out all the stops. The governor declared a state holiday to be preceded by three days of Gone with the Wind events, including a parade of the film's stars that drew a crowd of over 150,000 people. Gala days in Dixie. Southern hospitalities at fever pitch as distinguished visitors arrive, headed by producer David Selznick and screen stars Olivia de Havilland and Vivian Lee. 
President Jimmy Carter later called it, quote, the biggest event to happen in the South in my lifetime. And he wasn't the only famous Georgian to experience it. The night before the premiere was a gala costume ball. Among the performers, a gospel choir featuring nine-year-old Martin Luther King Jr. But the screening was hardly a milestone in civil rights. Atlanta was still racially segregated. So in a moment of irony, even Hollywood would have had a hard time dreaming up. The film's black stars weren't allowed to attend the premiere of a film about the war over slavery. Actress Hattie McDaniel's photo didn't even appear in the program. The event was a giant success anyway, and so was the movie. Adjusted for inflation, it's earned over $1.6 billion. McDaniel, meanwhile, went on to win an Oscar at the Academy Awards that year, the first African-American ever to do so. At that star-studded gala, she did sit in the audience. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve along with it. I'm speaking with Stuart White. He is resident mixologist at Miller Union in Atlanta, Georgia. And Stuart, I guess I shouldn't be surprised by this, being that you are a bartender in Atlanta, but you already had a Gone with the Wind-themed cocktail on hand? Indeed, I did. The drink was inspired by a a grave at Atlanta's historic Oakland Cemetery, the grave of a Civil War surgeon, a Frenchman named Dr. Noel de Alvigny, who served the Confederacy during the Civil War. And what did he do? Uh, In fact, Dr. Alvigny prevented Sherman's troops from burning down the Atlanta Medical Training Hospital, which is now our Emory University Hospital. Oh, man. So he's a hero. He he actually did it with some panache. He uh, (laughs) took his helpers and got them soused on some liquor, dressed them up as patients, and laid them down in bed. So when Sherman's troops came in to burn the building down, he ran out and uh, implored them not to do it. He said there are patients here. Yes, they weren't actually patients. They were just drunk assistants. But That is genius. So this drink is sort of in honor of him. Yeah, the drink is called the French Connection. Of course. I used French cognac that we've added cinnamon, nutmeg, and clove to, along with a tart cherry liqueur and some fresh ginger with good quality French champagne. Wonderful. That was a, a French drink was the last thing I thought you would come up with for a Civil yeah. War themed cocktail, but you've made it make sense, which is genius. I was yeah. I was kind of thinking that you might somehow take a Manhattan and like a mint julep and bring them together so you'd kind yeah. of have the United America in a glass, but bringing France and America together is equally difficult. So, yeah. congrats. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have the recipe for that drink and all our drinks at dinnerpartydownload.org. Enrico, Gone with the Wind won 15 Oscars, but not the one for Best Makeup. Oh, it was a disappointing night. They were sad. sad. But they might have scored that Best Makeup Oscar if they'd only hired our next guest, V. Neal. V is one of the most acclaimed makeup artists in Hollywood and a judge on Sci-Fi's reality show about special effects makeup. Just before heading off to work on Catching Fire, the second installation of the Hunger Games franchise, she stopped by to list her favorite work by others in the field. Hi, my name is V. Neal, and I am one of the judges on the TV show Face Off. You may have seen some of my work. I've won Oscars for Beetlejuice, Mrs. Doubtfire, and Ed Wood. So here's a list of my three favorite makeups and movies. The first one would be The Bride of Frankenstein, where Elsa Lancaster, of course, is The Bride of Frankenstein, done by the great Jack Pierce, makeup artist, who designed all of the original Universal monsters, starting with Frankenstein, the mummy, Wolfman. 
There's a great scene where she meets the Frankenstein monster for the first time, and she looks absolutely amazing. Her hair is like straight back in a huge shock. She's got white streaks on either side. And she gets introduced to the Frankenstein monster, and she turns to him and hisses. And it's just almost like a release of, like, electricity coming out of her mouth from when she has, you know, been shocked and brought to life. And it's probably one of my favorite scenes in a film with those two meeting in black and white. And it's just an amazing, you know, makeup transformation for not only her, but him as well, obviously. Um, My second one would be Star Wars, the cantina sequence, which has so many fantastic characters in it. Stuart Freeborn, Rick Baker, several other makeup artists who were not even credited on the film transformed humans into these very far-fetched aliens that we see in the Star Wars cantina sequence, which is probably one of the funnest things, you know, that's ever been done. There's a character that looks like a big fake fur snowball. And at one point or another, you'll see Rick Baker actually pop up in a makeup that looks sort of like a devil character, which is kind of cool. And they do look, you know, they're very, you know, (laughs) fake fur looking guys. It is really remedial now. I mean, but it was fun. You know, you've got Chewbacca, who was fabulous. He didn't have fake fur. He had actual hair. It was on a whole big ventilated suit. So that was very state of the art at the time. And I mean, that still kind of holds up. Now they'd probably CGI his mouth and do all kinds of crazy stuff. But, I mean, all in all, he was a pretty fantastic character. At the time, it was the most exciting makeup transformations that we had seen. I was just pretty much starting out, but to think that you could actually do that to a human being was awesome. (laughs) Last but not least would be The Exorcist, which is probably one of my all-time favorite makeups, which scared the heck out of me when I was little. You know, it still is quite frightening. Dick Smith, who's the god of makeup, as we all know, or most of us do anyway, um, created that. And he did the Godfather films, Taxi Driver, Stepford Wives. I mean, the man is just, you know, he's beyond the beyond. The, the Exorcist is, about a fil- is a film about a young girl who's possessed by a demon, the devil, what have you. And her makeup is, is truly frightening. She has sores all over her face. She's got teeth. She's got contact lenses. She has horrible eruptions all over her body. Her head twists around backwards, which is one of the scariest things I've ever seen. She also walks downstairs backwards. When I saw it, I was, it was frightening. I mean, it was so realistic. I mean, I'd, I don't think I'd ever really seen anything that looked that real. I mean, she, Linda Blair was truly frightening. And, and in that film, you do see a complete transformation of what she looked like when she was a child into this horrible demon creature. I think probably the film that I'm most proud of would be the transformation of Robin Williams into Mrs. Doubtfire. For those of you who haven't seen Mrs. Doubtfire, it is a man passing himself off as an old woman. Robin wore 13 overlapping foam latex appliances, as well as a fat suit, as well as a wig. The first time we did it, it took about four hours to get him into makeup, and eventually I got it down to two hours with an assistant. And sometimes we did it even faster, which was amazing, probably on a day when we weren't exhausted. (laughs) Robin, when he first looked at himself in the mirror, absolutely loved it. And it was really fun for him because we were shooting on the streets in San Francisco. 
and I remember standing next to him on a corner and somebody walked up to me and they said, hey, I heard Robin Williams is here today. Is he here? And I'm looking around, I'm looking at Robin and I said, uh, yeah, he's somewhere. He's somewhere around here. And he, Robin just chuckled because nobody knew he was anything but an old lady. The guest list from Oscar-winning makeup artist V. Neal. And now we turn from movie make-up sessions mm. to movie make-out sessions. Oh. Oh, yeah. That's what we call a jump cut in Hollywood. This is one of our favorite bits of movie lore, courtesy of director Spike Lee. A while back, he spoke to Rico about his movie Do the Right Thing, a landmark for film buffs, and for a film fan named Barack. Something that I learned from your book that I didn't know, our nation's president went on his first date with Michelle Obama to do the right thing. It's a true story. Yeah, but really? I mean, it just doesn't seem like a date movie to me. It was for them, their first date. As I said in the book, if Barack could take Michelle to see Drama's Days instead, she would have dumped him after that. <laughs> he gotta go. So there you have it, people. Your choice of film could change the course of history. Choose carefully, everybody. All right, we're going to take a break, but stick around, because in a minute, funny man Adam Pally explains how his religious education was ruined by Steven Spielberg. It's an all-movie episode of the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and here's legendary talk show host Dick Cabot impersonating Alfred Hitchcock. He said this to me during a commercial break. Grace Kelly, the most promiscuous woman I've ever known. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. The way to do it is put the tip of your tongue on your back upper left tooth and talk. (laughs) All right. Like you're trying to get something out of your tooth. See, now you too can speak Hitch. I love that segment. Just one of many things that you will learn from this, our all-movie episode. Like, in a few minutes, we'll tell you how Steven Spielberg started a one-man riot. I'd like to go there right away. That's such a great tease. But first, (laughs) it's time to talk to a movie star. All right. And one of the brightest in both senses of the word is Michelle Williams. She's earned three Oscar nominations for Brokeback Mountain, Blue Valentine, and most recently, My Week with Marilyn, in which she played Marilyn Monroe. Mm. I spoke with her about that role but not before she told me acting was not her first calling. First, I wanted to be a boxer, and then I wanted to be a, <laughs> a long-distance truck driver, wow. and then I wanted to be an actress. Why? Where did the boxing impulse come from? I don't know. It was some sort of very dark vision of <laughs> the way my life would go. Either I was going to be hit in the face, or I was going to be destined to um, take to the open road yeah. and do a lot of speed or something, <laughs> drive through the night. I, I really don't See? know what... I don't. Your life's nothing like that, probably. Well, there is actually a lot of speed. No, um, there is is actually a lot of driving through the night. All right. Um, And you got to take some hits. All right. Well, that sounds like the public radio life I lead. (laughs) Is it harder or easier to play someone who's already existed? One thing that makes it easier is that you have you have all this available material you know other characters that i've played they exist somewhere between my imagination the script and the director and that's an unreal world but with marilyn you know i could have spent the next 10 years researching her and when you can actually put your hands on physical material there's something comforting about it you know i can actually feel myself preparing understanding and i i took a lot of comfort in that And with these other girls, these other characters, 
It's all kind of in my head. Well, you know, your role in the film Blue Valentine, which you starred in last year, is such a contrast. Yeah. Um, in that film, you play a fairly normal young woman. Well, I think, I mean, I've always been drawn to characters like that, people that you feel like, you know, maybe they're sitting next to you in the movie theater or you ride with them on the subway or who are ordinary and who are, you know, infinitely relatable. Marilyn was extraordinary. Marilyn Monroe was a character that she played, and it was a result of years of training, study. And so what I realized is that there's a human, there's a human being underneath. You mentioned the uh, character Marilyn played. Is that tempting to do as a public figure? Oh, putting on a facade, you mean? Yeah, to have a, you know, kind of different face for the world. Yeah, I have actually, I I feel split on the subject. I've kind of always wished that I had a different name, like I'd taken on a pseudonym, (laughs) because it would feel like a kind of armor somehow. So whatever got thrown your way, positive or negative, it somehow wouldn't stick to you because it wouldn't actually be you. That's interesting. Um, So I've always envied people that have had that. But what would run in contrast to that is that, you know, the biggest work of my life is to have a happy life and to have a long life and a healthy life. And that goes hand in hand with knowing who you are, mm-hmm. not re- really representing something different on the outside from what's on the inside. And I've spent the last 31 years trying to figure out, you know, how to make those two match. And now that i 31, I kind of think I'm there. And so I would <laughs> not be quick to abandon that or shed that. And also I spend most of my life playing other people. So it would be weird to spend even more of my life playing other people. That's interesting. Well, and Michelle Williams, this is the easiest name for me to pronounce I've encountered in, in months. So I'm happy you kept your name. Uh, well, thank you very much. <laughs> there were some ideas early on that I should change it, but they all made me sound like a porn star. So I was like, mm, I don't think I'll be Michelle Montana, but thank you. <laughs> That's right. You're from Montana, right? And isn't, uh, that, yes. and isn't that how the porn star name game works? You kind of... Uh, oh, yeah. That is how you in your first dog or something. And I think your middle yeah. name goes in there too i think so my porn star name would be doxy <laughs> francis princeton that sounds kind of good i'd run a movie francis with him in it princeton actually probably not <laughs> <laughs> what's something you learned about marilyn monroe that most people don't know um let's see what did i learn about her that most people don't know um when she was married to arthur miller he had children so she had stepchildren and when they were at summer camp she would write to them as the family dog And in the voice of the family dog, tell them, you know, about the slippers that he had been chewing and how naughty he had been and how much he looked forward to their return and playing in the grass. You know, that's a kooky thing to do. She was kooky. Yeah. Uh, And that, I don't know, that really tickled me more than anything was how much vitality. Yeah, the vitality is a great, is that an adjective? (laughs) But that's, it's a great word to describe that sort of, it indicates a vulnerability, but also an intelligence around. Yeah, it's like a real sign of life. Yeah. It's not just happy birthday, Mr. President. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not. Which is the intoxicating dream of Marilyn Monroe that, you know, could a creature have walked this earth who existed purely to make us happy and to give us pleasure? Is that possible? And the answer is no. Oh, no, really? (laughs) No, I'm sorry. She was just a girl. Um, Is it true that you remained in character offset? (laughs) Offset? No, not when I go home. Yeah, Um, that that was my follow-up because that seems a little weird, frankly. Yeah, no, I wouldn't... I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't do I mean, that. My family. friends and family would not allow <laughs> such a thing. I mean, I've sort of said before, like, I like to read my kid. If I'm working on something, you know, her bedtime stories will sort of take on a flavor of something that I'm experimenting with. But she's gotten to the point where she's sort of hip to it. And she's like, uh-uh, not the, not the she calls her Mara Moreau. She's like, <laughs> not the Mara Moreau voice. All right, well, we have another standard question we ask our guest. Tell us something we don't know, either about you or it can be a fact about the world at large. 
I learned a new word that I really like. Oh yeah, what's that? I subscribe to this um, the OED online. Yeah, and I get a word a day. the The last word that I got and saved was mellifluous, which means yielding or producing honey. And probably most people didn't know that. I, I absolutely didn't know that, and I didn't even know they needed a word for it because I thought, oh, don't only bee- bees are the only things that do that, right? You know, when you think about it for a little longer, mm-hmm. other ways to integrate that word might pop into your head. Michelle Williams. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, a great adjective. Very Marilyn Monroe of you to bring it up. <laughs> Actor Michelle Williams proving English lessons need not be boring. It inspires just a love of language. Folks, you can use whatever words you want to tell us about your favorite movie moments. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org. To eavesdrop. Actor Adam Pally starred on the acclaimed television sitcom Happy Endings, but for this all movie episode, we overhear him tell a tale about the day Steven Spielberg led him to war with a rabbi. Hey, my name is Adam Pally. I play Max on the show Happy Endings. This is a story about my early days as a warrior against religion. I was in the sixth grade, mid 90s. My parents sent me to a private Jewish school because they were concerned about me going to the mean streets of Livingston, New Jersey public school, and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. There was a dress code. I hated wearing a yarmulke. I was big into the idea that, like, just because I'm not wearing a yarmulke doesn't mean I'm not Jewish or that I don't believe in it. That was argued against, (laughs) shockingly. But the thing I hated the most was wrapping tefillin, which is a Jewish custom, that primarily takes place in the Orthodox community, but we had to do it. It's filling our leather ropes. You wrap around your arm seven times, and it has a box on the end of it that has a prayer inside it, and there's one that you put on your head, and you have to do both. And I was like, no. That was the line for me. (laughs) I was like, not doing it. Nope. I was on my high horse about five days, and then the edict came down from the rabbis that I was not allowed to play sports if I wasn't going to wrap filling. And they said, during baseball practice, you're going to have to sit in a room with the head rabbi who will definitely, like, you know, teach you the right ways. And, and let me paint a picture of what Rabbi Lerner looked like. Imagine Santa Claus, but, like, Jewish. We hated each other. I was everything he didn't like about new thinking, and he was a rabbi, so I hated him. <laughs> and well, first off, I'll say that I had recently read an unauthorized biography of Steven Spielberg, where he had talked about how he is not a religious Jew. But he had just made Schindler's List, and he had done all this amazing work in restoring the knowledge of the Holocaust. I was impressed because I was like, that's how you do it. That's how you're a Jew. You don't have to go making a show of it, walking around with filling on, you know what I mean? What ended up happening while I sat there, for the first six days I was quiet. It was like Goodwill Hunting, where they just sit there, and then it's like your time is up. It was like a battle of wills. And then finally, he got frustrated, and he yelled at me. He was like, I'm not going to continue to come in here and waste my time for someone who doesn't believe in God, and where are you going to end up? He ripped into me, you know? And it just, like, worked him up. He went to the bathroom. He's like, I'm going to the bathroom. 
I was unhinged. I was almost crying. I was so angry. So I took the tefillin, which had been sitting on his desk. There was an exposed pipe, and I wrapped the tefillin around it. And that's leather, so it, it holds. And I backed up all the way to the last desk in the room, and I waited till he walked in, and then I started swinging on it like Indiana Jones. First of all, I am amazed that he didn't have a heart attack right then. His mouth was so agape that I saw all his fillings. And then I started screaming at the top of my lungs titles of Steven Spielberg movies. You know, so I was like, Close Encounters of the Third Kind! E.T! Indiana Jones! And he looked at me like, this kid's crazy. In my mind, I was like, he'll get this. But he didn't know that I had read that. Then I took it a step further. I was like, USC! Arizona! These are just facts that I had read from Steven Spielberg's biography because he grew up in Arizona and that he had gone to USC. So it's like really didn't make any sense what he was hearing. You know, God, as I'm telling you this story, I'm I'm feeling for him because he must have walked in that room and saw like a 13 year old boy just turned upside down crazy committing a hate crime. I mean, defacing religious artifacts. It must have been a lot for him to swallow. The next thing I knew, security guards had my hands behind my back and were walking me down to the principal's office where I waited. My mom showed up. They called her out of work. I remember looking at my mom being yelled at by the principal. You know, I'm sure in her mind she couldn't believe that I had done that. But then she looked up and she looked at me through the glass and she smiled at me. That was my Schindler's List moment of the little girl in the red dress because I was like, everything's going to be okay. And she came out and she goes, you're going to public school. Actor and Spielberg disciple Adam Pally. You can catch him now on the TV comedy The Mindy Project. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And usually on the show, we have one guest of honor. But hey, this is a special. So here's a second one. It's my chat with David O. Russell, director of Three Kings, The Fighter, and Silver Linings Playbook, which earned him an Oscar nomination. It's a movie about two lonely people with psychological disorders. And it's also really funny. I asked him why he often mixes comedy with controversy. Well, to me, the humor just always has to come from the same place, which is a place of what's real and raw. So I would, in my view, I consider Raging Bull or Goodfellas to be two of the funniest movies I've ever seen. And obviously not the whole picture. Yeah, yeah. But you'd say, oh, my God, who are these people? And that's a different kind of funny than I'm making jokes, you know. So the same thing that's going to make you really upset is also going to make you laugh. Now, that said, that you're no stranger to controversial topics, you spent a lot of time getting this particular subject right. You've spent an inordinate amount of time in the editing room, I'm, I understand. What made this movie harder to nail the tone of than these others? Uh, the reason is that when Sidney Pollack gave me the book, he said, this is a tough one. It was the year that he died he gave me the book. And I had been looking for a story that I could tell what my experiences had been with my son, who has suffered from bipolar and other mood disorders. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I mean suffer, I mean scenes that you don't want to go through. So I was looking for a story to tell that would make my son feel a part of the world. And when Sidney Pollack gave me the book, I said, oh, this could be that story, Matthew Quick's novel. And I said, he said, how are you going to get the tone right, Sidney Pollack said. And I said, well, I think I know it from the inside. I've been there. But there was a balancing act. And that meant we shot scenes many different ways. Yeah, yeah. There was a very dark version of this film, much darker. But it was also good that we had medium and lighter. Which you clearly ended up with a little more of. Yeah. 
So is this the girl you wrote about? Yeah. What? You wrote about me? I'm the girl? He wrote about you, all right. What did he say? He said you guys was helping each other out, and you were nice, and you had a mouth on you, but... Whoa, 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 whoa. okay. You okay. a little yeah, mouthy, yeah. but... No, please, tell me more about what he said in the letter. Yeah, anything you want to know, I'll just tell you in the letter. It was nothing about it. It was just a very general letter. Cool. She's fine. She is my friend with an F. A capital F. For a friend. This is ultimately a romantic comedy by the end of it, as much as we're talking about the sort of dark elements of the film. It isn't to me, but people say that. It ain't to me. Really? But it resolves so... Spoiler alert. It resolves so positively. Well, but that's the name of the movie is Silver Linings Playbook. So, I mean, I was not going to make a movie for my son or anybody like those people that had a dark ending because I happen to agree with Bradley Cooper's character when he's ranting about A Farewell to Arms, the Hemingway book. You know, is it really... This is the ending that he comes up with, that she dies, everybody dies in the end. Isn't life hard enough? Would it, it would be so hard to come up with a good ending? I, I think that's a valid position. But you just said, on the other hand, that you still see the movie as not... Uh, I just despise that term. I don't even... I just hate that term. It doesn't mean anything to me. Romantic comedy? I, or Yeah, I would never say I'm going to make a romantic comedy. Because I think that true cinema sort of transcends genre, and it's not... You don't think of it that way. That's like a glib way that turns your brain off. And I would never want to, as a filmmaker, make a film that way. All right, well, we're getting to the end of this interview, and we ask uh, all of our interviewees two standard questions, and you may have just answered the first one, but I'm going to run it by you anyway. If we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked? What are you kind of sick of hearing? I don't, I, I, when, when people ask me, you know, and I think Ben Affleck has spoken about this too. He said it's a wonderful privilege to be spoken about just for your work instead of things that happened like three presidential administrations ago. You yeah, know? And yeah. so for people like, you're bringing up stuff that happened during the Clinton administration. <laughs> you're just going to keep painting me with that brush about some conflict I had 12 years ago. Okay. Or, you know, all that stuff. So you don't want to talk about conflicts that happened in the past, but you don't mind talking generally about your past life. Oh, that also, that happened to me. The BAFTA guys do an interview with you, you know, for, in front of the BAFTA people. The British that, Academy of Arts. There you go. I sat down and... He starts out with, like, your childhood. And and you're like, I don't, wait, what? I thought we were going to talk about Silver Linings Playbook. We're starting in my childhood. Sure. The year was 1965. Long... <laughs> exactly, exactly. We have here a police report that you stole a pack of Wrigley's chewing gum. What say you, Russell? Let me ask you, did you ever steal anything? <laughs> I did. Actually, it was a pack of Juicy Fruit gum, and my parents brought me back to the store and made me apologize. That is my identical experience, but not with a pack of gum. What was Mine it? Was like, you know, remember those square erasers you could get? They were kind of brown. They were like a cube shape. Yeah. And my mother kept saying, do you want anything? Do you want anything? <laughs> I, was in, I was in New York City, and I was like, no, no. And then, and then like some weird, it's like the devil gets a hold of you, and you're like, I'm going to take this and put it in my pocket. I'm going to do it my way on my terms. And my mother will not be involved. What is wrong with us? <laughs> I, would, I was going to ask you our second question, but you may have just answered it with that anecdote, which is uh, tell us something we don't know. We now know you're a kleptomaniac. Hey, hey, look at that. Look how that happens. <laughs> that is what is called sensationalism. Russell kleptomaniac. Next <laughs> headline. Right. So uh, the other thing that is good is that uh, singing is a wonderful thing that I found. I never used to sing. I was afraid to sing. I sang out of key, and it was by allowing myself to sing badly for many years that I eventually started to sing in key, and I, can, I really enjoy singing songs that I really love, sometimes just with friends or by myself. What are the songs you really love? Maybe we can go out on one of them. Here we go. Come fly with me. Come fly. Let's fly away. Uh. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar 
in old Bombay. And you're telling me that you don't like romantic comedy. Please. We can do better than that word. Come fly with me. Let's fly. Let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. David O. Russell, his new movie American Hustle, starring Christian Bale and Bradley Cooper, is due out Christmas Day. We don't have any more of him singing, but we do have a longer cut of that interview at dinnerpartydownload.org. And folks, we're going to take an intermission, but in a minute, more movie magic when this all-movie dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. It's our all-movie episode, and in a few minutes, I will do a deep dive into Kubrickian conspiracy theories. An odyssey, if you will. Or not. But first, a slightly shallower jump behind the scenes of another great director, David Lynch. Here's actor Laura Dern with a gruesome anecdote about working on Lynch's cult classic, Blue Velvet. Actually, I do remember David, oh, I can't even say it, it's so gross. But I was 17, I remember him like pulling apart a brain of something. Whoa. And putting it on the floor. And I was like, what is that? He's like, it's a brain! I was like, you mean like somebody made a face? No, it's a brain. You're supposed to step over it. It's got to be a brain. And it's, I still to this day don't know whose brain it is or what kind of brain. What a weird teenage life you had. <laughs> and Dennis Hopper's like, yeah, it's a brain. It's a brain. What? What? What's so weird about that? I'm like, really? Have you been with brains on every movie you've ever done? Because I've never seen a brain. He's like, I usually fry them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That is amazing. It's exactly what you imagine is happening on yeah. David Lynch's sets. It really is as twisted as you want it to be, folks. Anyway, listen, everybody. David Lynch and Dennis Hopper's behavior may not have always been proper, but on this show, we continually strive to promote good etiquette. It's true. And to that end, we always dedicate a segment to tackling your etiquette questions. That's right. We usually invite a celebrity to answer them, and one of our favorites was actor and comic David Alan Greer. Sure. He's starred in dozens of films, and he's also well-known for portraying a film critic on the beloved sketch comedy show in Living Color. Two snaps up for that performance. In the form of a Z. Right on. When his movie Peoples hit the big screen, we welcomed him to our show like this. And David, welcome. Hi. Thanks for coming. That was polite. Hi. Well, it, it was also disarming. One, You don't want to ever be too formal. <laughs> That's right. How do you Good do? Good day, sir. It is a pleasure to meet <laughs> your acquaintance. Yeah, I would think you're going to smack me with a glove <laughs> exactly. if you say that. Dad, is or, that you? <laughs> exactly. Or deposition time. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about the movies for a minute. This is, it's about this lovable kind of schlubby guy. Craig. Yes, that's not you. Craig Robinson's character, yeah. And he wants to win over his girlfriend's Upper Crest family, of which you are the patriarch. I am. And he's kind of a snob, and you seem to really enjoy playing that guy. It was awesome. I mean, uh, you know, to look down on people, I do it for free. (laughs) Uh, No, but I mean, this guy, he reminds me, too, of like all of the fathers I had to endure when I was younger. You know, I remember one girl, her father said, I don't want any bodacious behavior. (laughs) Bring my daughter home. Wow. Bodacious. Were you dating Mitt Romney's daughter? (laughs) Crazy. No, not not by a long shot. (laughs) And by the way, she loved bodacious behavior. I just, yeah. (laughs) You didn't tell him that, though. No, I did not. Everything was fine. Well, if you wanted to act like a snob in your personal life, you have a right to, because we learned that you go way back in public radio. You played a small part in the 1980 radio version of Star Wars, (laughs) 
which was a collaboration between NPR and George Lucas. I thought Rika was the only collaboration between NPR and George Lucas. It was, I actually used to listen to that series, and I would record it by putting another tape recorder up to the radio speakers because wow. oh we didn't God. have a tape deck. Where did, where, what cult were you in? I was the, <laughs> the cult, cult of nerddom. Yeah, the <laughs> analog <laughs> nerd cult. But you, you must have been in your early 20s then. Well, well I, it, it was after my first year in drama school. My acting teacher, my Shakespeare acting teacher's name was John Madden, and people probably know him from Shakespeare in Love, Mr. Corelli's violin, maybe. He's a great sportscaster. Coach of the New York Giants. (laughs) (laughs) Howard Cosell's violin. (laughs) But he was an awesome teacher, and he knew I was going to be out in L.A., and he said, listen, David, perhaps you'd like to do some things with us. And I was like, yeah, okay. So he hired me, and I think I made $800 for four days' work. Whoa, they paid you that much? Yeah. Yes, man. NPR has really come down in, yes. in its pay grade. But I hung out with Mark Hamill and Frank Marshall, all these guys who were, who were associated with Star Wars, and Mark Hamill and I kind of became friends. Are you, are you still? No, but that, it's just, it was 100 years ago. In a planet far, far away. <laughs> nice. All right, well, listen, you, you play a judge in this movie. You're going to judge our audiences. I will. Etiquette questions. I've already begun judging you. Here's Pamela in South Lake, Texas, and she writes, my sister and brother-in-law have some large tattoos. I would be mortified if my children ever got a tattoo. How do I make it clear to my kids that while we love my sister and brother-in-law, the tattoo thing is definitely not a choice we approve of? There's nothing she can do. It's their body. And if they're underage, that's one thing. But my advice to her, if you really don't want your kids to get a tattoo, don't lay it on so thick. I mean, Mm. state your case. Um, There's lots of bad tattoo sites. You know, people have made mistakes. But in that, (laughs) she's probably not going to win. Uh, I'm not a big tattoo proponent, but that's personal. Everything else my mother and father told me not to do, I ran and did. So (laughs) she needs to lay off. Maybe you could, like, sort of do the reverse psychology thing where you come at them with a needle. It's like, isn't that a cool tattoo? (laughs) Don't you want one? I think think Pamela's going to take this in stride. She says, I would be mortified. But then she later says, it's definitely not a choice we approve that's, of. That's the attitude she has to have with her kids, yeah. don't you think? She can't be like, you're getting out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. You bring home a thing on your chest. So I feel like Pamela's well on her way to having untattooed children. Good. All right, so we have another question. This one comes from Steen in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Really? That's the name? I know. I, I want it to be <laughs> Steel in Bethlehem. I think it's a typo, and his name is Steven. Right. But what he a... writes, one of my coworkers has had a pretty gnarly cough for the past two and a half months. I've basically convinced myself that it's TB. How can I suggest she should get it checked out without seeming like I'm prying into her life? Let me jump in here. The problem I have with this question is I basically convinced myself. Okay, not my doctor girlfriend. (laughs) Not my dad's a, a physician. No, I basically convinced myself. No. I would say, here's my suggestion. I actually had a bad cough that developed into pneumonia. So I would just use that. I'd say, hey, why don't you get your cough checked out? Because it's true. It can develop into pneumonia. Why not be Mm. safe? And on that note, you should foot the doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely true. For being a big mouth. I wish you were here to say this because we work at a radio station. Everybody's using the same microphone. Yeah. Yeah. It is amazing. Like, sicknesses rage through this office like wildfire. Rico, David's never going to come back into our studio if you keep talking like that. No, it's like doing a play in Porgy and Bess. This was opening weekend when I got pneumonia. Everything that everybody else got, you got. Because we were standing in front of each other, spitting on each other and hollering and sweating all night. I think Steen's co-worker just kind of has a pothead. 
but that's just me. <laughs> well, that's a different kind of cough, you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. All right, here's something from Alex. Uh, he comes to us via Facebook. We have no idea where Alex is from. All right, let's skip that question. Alex, okay. <laughs> Next question. This comes from Allison in L.A. All right. question is, I was standing in line for the restroom, and the woman behind me asked if the designer top I was wearing was fake. My top was the real brand. How is one supposed to respond to that question? I, I have a very old school response. My mother always would tell me, uh, if you have a question like that, you respond, I hope so. It was a gift. Oh. You know, that's the old. That's really nice. Quite glove lady response. But of course, what the implication is, is that that looks pretty cheap. All right. That's what you think? Glass half empty? Here's where I go, mister. <laughs> I go, hey, hey, girlfriend, if that, if that is a fake, don't tell me where you got it because it looks so good. Okay. Because I can only afford the Chinatown or any other ethnic community we won't want to discuss. <laughs> French town. Inuit. Inuit yes, town. could be as well. <laughs> any of but those you towns. Know what I mean? Go, uh, here's yeah. another thing. Choose a higher class restroom facility. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Okay. Thank you. We have one question that we ask everybody on the show. Oh, this will be our last question. Let me guess. What do I want God to say when I get to heaven? No, no, no. Somebody. Welcome. That's the, another guy has the patent on that. Okay. This is a question about the most memorable get together you've ever been to. Please tell us about it. Who, what, where? Details, please. All right. I I don't think I ever told this story, but when I was about nice. nineteen years old, I moved to New York. I dropped out of college. I took my guitar. I was moved to New York. I wanted to be a singer songwriter, and literally five days after I landed, we're talking seventy five, seventy six. It was a Rolling Thunder review, and for those of you who are too young, it was Bob Dylan wow. and uh, just a cornucopia of legends. Yeah. I walked by Folk City in the village. I wander in, and the entire Rolling Thunder review was what? there. Not wow. only them, Phil Oaks was still alive. He sang, The folk singer. Yes, he sang a song to Bob Dylan, pleading with him to stay in the room and listen. Bette Midler sang. Um, oh, what? Legend after legend. The band was there. I, everyone performed, and I wandered out about four or five in the morning. Absolutely complete. It was a gift from God this night. And, and, and uh, it's all been downhill from there. Well, in terms of the parties. You, know. <laughs> you met Mark Hamill. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> David Allen Greer, thanks for telling our audience how to behave. Thank you. David Allen Greer, it's only a matter of time before he returns to a movie theater near you. Or perhaps what they call the legitimate theater, a.k.a. stage acting. Oh, yes. David performs in a ton of plays. He's been nominated for several Tony Awards, and he studied drama at Yale. Although it's funny, I don't remember Hamlet snapping in the shape of a Z. <laughs> it was not there. I think it was Falstaff, I'm pretty sure. All right, back to the illegitimate theater. Yes. Uh, if you haven't picked up on it yet out there, we're really big fans of film around here. But our enthusiasm for celluloid pales in comparison to some, as Rico learned when he spoke with documentarian Rodney Asher. He is the director of the new documentary Room 237. It features the voices of five movie enthusiasts, would be a mild way of putting it, explaining their painstakingly detailed and in some cases rather questionable interpretations of the supposed hidden meanings in Stanley Kubrick's 1980 horror film The Shining. And Rodney, welcome. Good to be here. First of all, 
how did you happen on this as a subject for <laughs> a documentary? Well, I mean, I've always loved The Shining. I've always loved, you know, Kubrick's films. And a couple of years ago, a friend of mine just emailed me sort of out of the blue this one long, deep, symbolic analysis of The Shining that kind of blew my mind. And, you know, I had been coming off of a, a short documentary that in some ways was a little similar. This one was about people who had a childhood phobia of um, TV logos. So, what? <laughs> no, it's, it's that's a, a whole other. It's, it's a whole other patch of quicksand. <laughs> but so the idea that people were looking at The Shining under this powerful microscope it really hit a sweet spot for me, and I was instantly fascinated. And then the two of us spent the next year or so doing nothing but reading up as many possible theories, decoding the symbols and allegories buried within The Shining. Very quickly, for the 10 people in our audience who don't know it, can you give us the plot of The the Shining? It's actually not that complicated. No, it's – well, and what's weird about it is the movie is, you know, two hours, 40 minutes-ish. The American cut, of course, the UK cut is different and that's a whole thing. But <laughs> That people get way into. But for a movie that's pretty long, there's very little story. A family goes to sort of take care of a hotel that's closed during the winter and turns out the the hotel is haunted. The end. The, well, plus the son is psychic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> from, from this very simple story come these unbelievably complex close readings of supposed clues. There are people that take great meaning in your film from, you know, a poster that is in the corner of one room in one scene, things like that. You've got the skiing poster and my eye is drawn to it and I realize that's not a skier. That's a, that's a minotaur. It just leaped out at me. Yeah, I mean, the Minotaur lives at the heart of the labyrinth. He's a part of the labyrinth. Labyrinth, at least in the myth, you know, in this particular myth, was built for the Minotaur. The hotel's, you know, it is the labyrinth. And Jack is the Minotaur. Some um, of these yeah. theories seem to me rather crackpot, but which of, of these do you find the most plausible of the subjects in your film? Well, I mean, plausible is a really loaded word. You know, what, what, what I assume you mean by it is... Which of these things were put into the film by Stanley Kubrick for this particular purpose and this particular purpose only? Maybe possibly. That's an incredibly strict way to look at any of these ideas. And I've spent my time thinking about that. You know, it's one that becomes unanswerable, not the least of which is because Stanley Kubrick is dead. But he was also kind of smart enough not to want to explain any of his mysteries. You know, there's a quote from him about the Mona Lisa saying, you know, it wouldn't have been improved if there's a little plaque on the bottom saying, oh, she's smiling this way because she's thinking about how cute her boyfriend was when he was a little kid. (laughs) (laughs) Well, do you think this is maybe one of the things that makes Stanley Kubrick so ripe to to draw people that want to give these like incredibly close readings is that he's the kind of filmmaker that sort of begs it. Yeah, well, I mean, his movies, so many of his movies are puzzles. I mean, 2001 A Space Odyssey, you know, what's that space baby about <laughs> at the end? The Shining ends on, you know, the date, July 4th, 1921, which is presented as if it's got gigantic significance, but doesn't necessarily explain anything, you know, on a plot level that about you know, the movie. Yeah, it, it isn't the equivalent of Bruce Willis was a ghost all along. <laughs> <laughs> but for you, for yeah. you personally, do any of these interpretations ring particularly true? Yeah, well, I mean, all of them, if that doesn't sound like too much of a cop-out, because— A little bit of a cop-out. Well, <laughs> I'm not going to sell any of the— I'm not going to sell any of these guys down the river. But, some but, of the, I but mean, I, there's I, a guy here that, that talks about Kubrick faking the moon landing. This well, is he's like not a, the first person to say— He's not the first person to say that, and if— you were going to hire someone to fake the moon landing. You could hardly have come up with 
a better guy. Sure, but he didn't fake the moon landing. <laughs> Come on. He's not saying that the moon landing didn't happen. Jay Widener, the guy who talks about this, it's important to him that the moon landing happened. It's just that the footage we saw was faked for better PR purposes. It like makes a better commercial for NASA, basically. Yeah, that, you know, and I can kind of, you know, I've done a little thought experiment about it myself and knowing that, you know, Stanley Kubrick was consulting with NASA during the making of 2001 A Space Odyssey. And it's so easy for me to imagine someone, some engineer coming up to him and saying, hey, you know, we're going to the moon in a couple of years. Do you got any pointers for how we could shoot it? And then he would say, well, we've got this moon set that we built for 2001. Just, just let me here, do it. Just sitting here. In talking to you, I get the feeling that you yourself are a fanatic. Do you feel an affinity to the people that you were talking to? Oh, absolutely. You know, they're much more accomplished than me. Or more monomaniacal than you, perhaps. Are they? I mean, I I spent two years looking at this movie a a frame at a time and listening to their conversations (laughs) again and again and again and again. And here I am still talking about it. That's true. Um, Only, you know, I'm kind of, you know, regurgitating their work. You know, I'm not. Roger Ebert, I'm Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) (laughs) You picked five people to give their theories for this movie. Is there something common to all of them and maybe to you as somebody who's obviously also into this movie? You know, what they and me and probably anybody who'd be tempted to see Room 237 share is the idea that, you know, a movie like The Shining is an important work of art and time spent struggling to understand it is not time wasted. You know, I'd I'd be amazed if any of them have room in their heads for anything like fantasy football. I mean, no judging, but it's certainly nothing that I could possibly get my head around. Judge not lest you be judged is what you're saying. Yeah, there are people who think it's the most sensical thing in the world to spend years studying The Shining, and then, you know, there's the rest of you pathetic fools. Rodney Asher, director of the documentary Room 237, and Brendan, his other film that he mentioned about people who fear the old Screen Gems TV logo. Yeah. That is called The S from Hell, and we have a link at (laughs) dinnerpartydownload.org. Very cool. But we warn you, you'll see our logo there, which features a fork, which if you look at it right, is kind of like Satan's tail. I never noticed that before. Folks, that is a wrap for this all-movie episode of the Dinner Party Download. We'll be back next week with a traditional episode featuring our usual smorgasbord of weird news, new music, food trends, and yes, probably more movies. Let us roll the end credits. Jackson Musker is the associate producer of our show. Our interns are Brittany Martin, James Delahousie, and Davey Kim. Thanks to Charlton Thorpe for engineering assistance. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. As always, you can download podcasts of all our shows at dinnerpartydownload.org. And you can have your people contact our people by sending your correspondence to dinnerparty at americanpublicmedia.org. Let's do lunch. And cut. <laughs>